Okay, I don't have any announcements that I'm aware of. This is a banner day with no announcements. Everything is going along pretty well. Uh, just an update, Bryce is going to send something out in a little while, but uh, Pam, my wife, is in uh, Guatemala with the medical missions team, went down this last Saturday, will be back this coming Saturday, and uh, she has had a lot of opportunities to share the gospel. She took the Spanish version of the Promise book down with her, and she's been giving that out to people. She was a little hesitant at first because she didn't know if they could read because a lot of these are, are rural people, but most of them could read. And she said that she was uh, quite pleased today because she'd given a lot out yesterday and this morning, and when she came back into the ward this afternoon, she saw quite a few people sitting there in their bed reading it. So that's, uh, that's real positive. So we can be, be thankful for that and then be in prayer for that a uh, couple more days when they're doing surgeries. And then Friday's their cleanup day, and then they come home on, on, uh, on Saturday. So be in prayer for that, please. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are all spiritually prepared to study the word and to focus on the eternal truths of scripture and to be challenged in our understanding of worship, both in terms of our own personal mental attitude in relation to uh, individual worship as well as that which we should bring to the table or to the uh, worship service on Sunday morning. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege we have to come together to reflect upon who you are to think about how we worship and why we worship, and to come to a tremendous uh, understanding of your nature, your person, and just who you are as the foundation of our, of our focus, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout our, our week, throughout our lives. Father, we pray for us as we study your word that God the Holy Spirit will uh, open our eyes, illuminate our understanding to what is revealed in scripture, that we may come to a more clear understanding of, of uh, who you are. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are studying in First Samuel, I mean, excuse me, Second Samuel, as well as in First uh, Chronicles 15 and 16, building a, an understanding of a topic, the topic of worship, off of the foundation of what happened in, uh, described in Second Samuel, but more fully in First Chronicles 15 and 16, as David has taken the initiative to move the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He's moving the throne of God. Scripture teaches that, that God is enthroned between the cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant. So as they're moving the covenant, they don't do it according to Scripture. And as a result, one of the priests that is walking along with it 
uh, reaches out to stabilize it when the cart hits a uh, pothole and jostles the ark, and as a result, it's more than just touching it. There is a, an attitude that is there because it is viewed as significant disrespect to God, and God takes the life of Uzzah. This truly strikes fear into the hearts of those who are there, and, and David. And so this is a one aspect or one facet to the phrase that we read about a lot in scripture which is the fear of the lord normally there's this approach to the that phrase that it's talking about awe and that's certainly a major part of it there are different facets to fear as we're going to see in our study this evening but what i want to look at initially are just some some uh, questions that came up last week. But first, just a reminder, I really like this quote in uh, Ross's book. Our attention to the Lord must not be an ordinary part of life. Ordinary life is referred to by the word profane, not in the sense we use it often with profanity, but profane has as its core meaning just common, the everyday use of something. So we have everyday language, we have everyday uh, forms of art, forms of music, but what happens in worship is distinct because God is distinct. And the biblical word for that, as I've emphasized, is the word holy. God is unique. He's distinct. He's one of a kind. And so what we do in worship, as we see the foundation in the Old Testament, should not be like everything else. It should not necessarily be something that makes us comfortable. And yet, that idea has pervaded the church growth movement, uh, that, that church is for uh, attracting the unchurched, the seekers, which is theologically flawed. The purpose of church is for the body of Christ to come together to be edified. The purpose of church is not evangelism, it is edification. And back decades ago, there were, there was always the caricature that if you were in going to a Baptist church, then you never got out of the Gospels because every Sunday it was just a repetition. You were It was an evangelistic sermon, basically. You went to a Pentecostal church, you never got out of Acts 2. And if you went to a Bible church, you never got out of the epistles. And, uh, and sadly, that, that caricature had a measure of truth to it. But... The purpose for the meeting of the church is the edification edification of the body. So what we do on Sunday morning, what we do in worship is not an ordinary part of life. Our worship of him should be the most momentous, urgent, and glorious activity in our lives. So we're understanding that by looking at the scripture. Now, a question came up last week because I was talking about the two key words that we find in Isaiah uh, 6, that is glory and holy. And holy, of course, as I just indicated, means that which is unique or distinct. It's one of those many words in Scripture that we're so used to that we lose its meaning. Same thing with glory. And the idea of glory is that which is weighty. I mean, if you look the word up in, uh, in a Hebrew dictionary, the Hebrew word is kavod, and it has the idea of that which is heavy or weighty. So sometimes it's applied literally to an object is being heavy, but it also heaviness 
metaphorically refers to something that is significant. It is weighty. It is something that is uh, maybe a thought that is over overwhelming. It borders on the idiomatic use of that term from back in the 70s or 80s when you would see something impressive and might say, that wow, that's really heavy. But that's the biblical concept of heavy. It's, you're saying it's really important. It's overwhelming. It's, a, it, it's, it's an awesome idea, something like that. And so that's the idea of glory. And from there, I looked through various passages in Scripture, and one of the things we ended up with was in John chapter 1. So I want to go back and look at a couple of things in John 1 and tie that to where we are in, in Isaiah chapter 6. In John 1.14, we're told that Jesus came to reveal the, the glory of God. And we read about the incarnation in John 1.14, the word that is, the Greek term is logos, and that is a reference to Jesus. He is the second person of the Trinity, and the term logos has to do with with language and communication and expressing something or informing us about something. And so in his role as the second person of the Trinity, that's what Jesus is doing. He's revealing God to us, and that's what this verse is talking about. And the Word became flesh, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I pointed out that we often think of the glory of God in terms of this bright light, this effulgence. This the, the We talk about the Shekinah glory and think of the pillar of fire in the Old Testament that guided the Israelites through the wilderness that settled over the tabernacle. But glory, that was just a sort of a manifestation of God's presence. That's what Shekinah means from the Hebrew word shakan, meaning meaning the presence or the dwelling presence of God. So glory refers, though, to his his weightiness, his importance, his significance, his centrality. He is the without which nothing. The Latin phrase is uh, is important to understand. Stand there, um, in, in the sense that that without. God without something, then there there's nothing, and so that comes across in in English as without which nothing, and so this is the idea here is that that without God there's nothing. He is central. He's the focal point. Um, so John says we beheld His glory, and so we think about that. But the first time we have a statement made about Him manifesting His glory is in John two eleven, at the end of this first miracle when He turns the water into wine, and John says, and we beheld His, He manifested His glory, and and yet there's no flashing lights, there's no burst of light, there's no one knew what had happened. If you recall the story, He He and couple of his disciples went to this um, wedding in Cana of Galilee, and they run out of wine, and so his mother found out and came to Jesus and said, do something. And and it's, it, I, I was describing this last time, and in the middle of that uh, episode, uh, she comes to him and expects him to 
to uh, fix the problem. And, and he says to her in verse 3, Woman, what does what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Now, it's interesting that phrase, my hour is not yet come, is mostly used to refer to his death on the cross. But here it's at the beginning of his ministry. And I made the comment last time that what this has to do with is, is that he's not ready for a public presentation of his ministry. And I had a question uh, after class about this, and so I wanted to talk about it a minute, that Jesus, prior to this, Jesus had been uh, baptized by John the Baptist, even though that's public in one sense, that's not a public presentation of him in terms of his, his messianic credentials because this has all happened before this Cain of Galilee. What happened was there's the baptism, then, he, then he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and there is the testing of Jesus' character to prove his impeccability while he's in the wilderness and the uh, testing or the temptations of, uh, of Satan. And then he, after that is when he comes to Cana of Galilee. So I pointed out and got the question, well, what does it mean that his hour had not yet come? And what happens in the next episode that John tells us about, starting in John 2.13, is the Passover. So what has happened prior to this is he goes to John to be baptized, which probably happened sometime in January, because he's got 40 days in the wilderness when he's tested by Satan. So that's going to take him about six weeks, and then it's Passover. So if Passover that year occurred, roughly Passover usually occurs early April, something like that, then six weeks before that would have put the the, the temptation, the end of January, early February, depending on when it fell that year. So that's when he would have made his public presentation. That's when he began to heal, and that's when he began to perform miracles, and all of that is described in the, and when he cleanses the temple. That is really when his public ministry began, not with John the Baptist's statement that, Behold, the Son of the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, not with his um, testing in the wilderness, but when he comes to the temple, he cleanses the temple, all of those things, that starts his public ministry. So that's what that meant. Now, the next time we have the term glory used in reference to Jesus is a really interesting passage, and it relates directly to Isaiah chapter 6. So turn over to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Now I got into this and I had to make a decision because as I looked at John 12, I could just focus on verse 41, which says, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now there's an interesting phrase. John says that Isaiah saw... Jesus' glory. When did that happen? Well, that had to have happened in Isaiah chapter 6. And that, that, but in Isaiah chapter 6, it looks like it's God the Father. So we have to talk about that a minute. But I wanted to get the context here because the context is important. We all, never, I try not to 
grab verses out of context, and especially when it's something like this, uh, without explaining a little bit about what's going on. So this, of course, in John chapter 12, is just prior to the crucifixion. He has, although John doesn't... um, John doesn't uh, talk, well, he does talk about in John 12, 12 and following, he has the uh, triumphal entry. So this is taking place just after the triumphal entry. So that is on uh, Palm Sunday, that's Sunday morning. This is probably sometime uh, later that day. John isn't as precise in in his chronology. It could be even the next day. But... John comments on this, starting in verse 37, he said, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. Talking about most, uh, talking about primarily the, the Jews, but many of the crowds that are in Jerusalem. Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. And again, we see this emphasis in John that the issue is believing in him, that he is the Messiah who die, would die on the cross or die for their sins. So they didn't believe him. Now, I want you to po- want to point something out. This is an interesting passage, and people often distort what's going on here. The focal point of verse... Well, actually, in my slides, I started in verse thirty. Verse 35, okay, Jesus said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. That's your major theme all through John is that Jesus is the light. So he's telling the crowd after the entry into into Jerusalem, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. So while you have the light, referring to himself, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. So that's, he just goes off the scene. Then it says in the next verse, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. The emphasis there is on their volition. They are choosing not to believe that the signs indicate that he's the Messiah. And I pointed this out Sunday morning when we were talking about this, uh, in terms of John uh, 20, 30, and 31, that John organizes a gospel around eight signs. And the last sign, the seventh sign, before the resurrection is the resurrection of Lazarus, which takes place in John chapter 11. But here in this verse, he says, but although he had done so many signs which gave evidence of his claim to be the Messiah, they did not believe in him. That what that is saying is that they have a choice. It is not God's choice. God is not determining who will believe and who will not believe. That is squarely putting the responsibility on each one as to whether or not they will believe. Now, I'm emphasizing—excuse me—I'm emphasizing that because of what happens in the next verse. That the word of the Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. So this is immediately taking us into Isaiah. And the first quote is from Isaiah 53, 1, which is a literal prophecy and a literal fulfillment. It says, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so the point of Isaiah 53, 1 is that there are those who, many who will not believe 
that the Messiah, that when he comes, that the servant when he comes, that's the context of, of Isaiah 53 referring to the Messiah as the servant, that they would not believe the report of those who gave testimony as to who he was. And so this is fulfillment, that, that as Jesus is there in Jerusalem, there are many who don't believe him, and this is fulfillment of Isaiah 53.1. Then it says in verse 39, therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said, and here we have a quote from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. Now that's the very passage we're studying, Okay. That's where, why I'm going here is because this provides some illustration. We'll talk about it some more when we get there. And it's a quote from Isaiah 10. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Now that sounds like God has arbitrarily shut down their ability to understand and to respond positively, doesn't it? And this is a passage that Calvinists will go to to prove that because man is totally depraved, they can't understand or see or uh, believe the gospel because God has shut them down. But what preceded this in context was a statement that they didn't believe him, and that puts the the responsibility on them that they could believe him, but they had chosen not to, and because they had made a decision in negative volition to reject the gospel, the result of that is that God further hardens their heart, blinds their eyes, so that they will, con- so that Jesus' presence confirms them and in their unbelief and intensifies that unbelief. And what we'll see in Isaiah is that is exactly what Isaiah is being commissioned to do. In Isaiah chapter 6, when the Lord commissions him to send him to his people, it's not so they'll respond to his gospel and, and turn and believe, but that his message will confirm them in the, their rejection. They have already rejected the truth. And so now God is going to give evidence of the fact that they are negative, and he is going to uh, confirm that by their response to Isaiah. Now, let's look at another passage. I've talked about this a couple, or used it a couple of times recently on Sunday morning. First Chronicles 28.9. This is a really important passage for understanding human vo- the relationship between human volition and God's sovereignty. First Chronicles 28.9, David is talking. This is David's last words, and he talks about uh, the temple. He talks, gives a commission to Solomon, who is going to reign after him. And he says to Solomon in verse 9, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. Look at the last line. If you seek him, positive volition, if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, if you turn negative and you don't respond to the light that God has given you, and that's what Jesus is talking about here back in verses 35 and 36. He's the light, but they've rejected the light and turned to darkness. They've forsaken him, and 
David says to Solomon, if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. So this is putting the onus on the individual's decision, on the individual's volition. And if you reject or forsake God, then God will cast you off and he will confirm you in your unbelief. This is what happened with Pharaoh and Moses. Pharaoh rejects Moses. And then what God does is he hardens Pharaoh's heart only after he's already rejected Moses. First, he rejects grace and he rejects the opportunity to respond to God. And then God is going to through the miracles and through the plagues, he's going to confirm uh, Pharaoh in his unbelief. And that's, that's what happens with the Jews. Is he, the more light he gives, it doesn't re- cause the Jews to respond to Jesus. It hardens them in their unbelief. And that's the same thing that happens in Isaiah. So this is, um, so when we're looking at John chapter 12, what we're looking at is this uh, connection where John is connecting this back to what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah chapter 6, that, that the people don't believe and therefore God hardens them in their unbelief. That's verse 39. Therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. First Chronicles 28 says that if you reject him, he will reject you. So then he concludes in John 12:41, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So he saw the glory of God in Isaiah 6. But when we look at the throne of God and the person who is on the throne of God, it is the triune God that is present there. It is not, when, when it says here, he saw his glory, the glory of the Father is the same as the glory of the Son. And the glory of the Father and the Son is the same as the glory of the Holy Spirit. Because remember, in understanding the Trinity, that they have one essence. They are one in essence, but three in persons. But the glory refers to the centrality, the significance, and importance of who God is. That is his essence. And that essence is shared by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in some of these uh, appearances of God in the Old Testament, we try to distinguish that this is the Son or this is the Father, but in some places I believe it is the triune God who is present. And this is reflected in a term that was developed by uh, theologians early in the church called perichoresis. And I've used that term before. It's P-E-R-I-C-H-O-R-E-S-I-S, perichoresis. That when you, and Jesus refers to this in John, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what he says to Philip in John 14, I think it's around 14, 3 through 7. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so that's the same thing that we're saying about Isaiah in Isaiah 6, is if you've seen, as he looks at the Lord God on the throne, he's seeing the glory of the, of the triune God. 
He is seeing Father, the glory of the Father, he sees, which is the same as the glory of the Son, which is the same as the glory of the Holy Spirit. And so that is what is going on here. Now, what happens when Isaiah sees the glory of the Father, the glory of, of the appearance of the Lord God there in Isaiah 6, is that he is going to fall down and he screams out, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. And this expresses the fear of the Lord. And we see this not only with Isaiah, but I'm going to go through some other examples in the scriptures that when people in the Bible come face to face with God, the result is this fear of the Lord. And so this is an idea everybody struggles with expressing because there's different types of fear. There is the kind of fear that is just pure terror, which we may experience if you uh, watch a film such as The Exorcist or Poltergeist or some other uh, film like that that Hollywood churns out, and it's just designed to produce this this fear in, in the audience. But there's another element of fear that goes beyond that. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, calls it being aware of the numinous, of the numinous. And so in that, he makes a, he cites a passage from a book, a children's book called The Wind in the Willows. And in The Wind in the Willows, I think there's an allegorical aspect to it, but but, uh, what you have in the uh, in this book is some a- animal characters, uh, mole, rat, toad, badger, and otter. And they're in chapter 7, uh, m- the mole and rat are looking for otter's missing son, Portly. And they find him in the care of God, the god Pan. So as you read through this, and I'm going to read part of this because I think it's a great illustration of the concept of the fear of the Lord. Uh, We read, This is the place of my song dream, the place the music played to me, whispered the rat, as if in a trance. Here in this holy place, here, if anywhere, surely we shall find him. Then suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head, and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror indeed. He felt wonderfully at peace and happy, but it was an awe that smote and held him. And without seeing, he knew it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. With difficulty, he turned to look for his friend and saw him at his side, cowed, stricken, and trembling violently. And still there was utter silence in the populous, bird-haunted branches around him. And still the light grew and grew. Perhaps he would never have dared to raise his eyes, but that, though the piping was now hushed, the call and the summons seemed still dominant and imperious." He might not refuse were death himself waiting to strike him instantly once he looked with mortal eye on things rightly kept hidden. Trembling, he obeyed and raised his humble head, and then in the utter clearness of the imminent dawn, 
while nature, flushed with fullness of incredible color, seemed to hold her breath for the event, he looked in the very eyes of the friend and helper, saw the backward sweep of the curved horns gleaming in the glowing daylight, saw the stern hooked nose between the kindly eyes that were looking down on them humorously, while the bearded mouth broke into a half-smile at the corners. All this he saw in one moment, breath, one moment breathless and intense, vivid on the morning sky, and still as he looked, he lived, and still as he lived, he wondered. Rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, oh, mole, I'm afraid. See, though the context is a little waffly there, dealing with with these these allegories that these writers use, they're communicating the idea of what the Bible represents as fear. We stand in awe. We see these individuals in the Scripture trembling before the presence of God, yet it's not of terror, but there's a sense bordering on terror, but it is in awe of the being of God and who he is and standing in his uh, presence. C.S. Lewis clarifies the difference between fear and awe uh, with this example. He says, suppose you were told that there was a tiger in the next room. You would know that you were in danger and would probably feel fear. You'd feel terror. But if you were told there is a ghost in the next room and believed it, you feel indeed what is often called fear, but of a different kind. It would not be based on the knowledge of danger. It is uncanny rather than dangerous, and the special kind of fear it excites might be called dread. Now suppose that you were told simply, there is a mighty spirit in the room and believed it. Your feelings would then be even less like the mere fear of danger, but the disturbance would be profound. You would feel wonder and certain shrinking, a sense of inadequacy to cope with such a visit, visitant and of prostration before it. That feeling may be described as awe. So that gives us an idea of what's going on. And so when we look at Isaiah 6.3, there's this, this, this confrontation between the creature Isaiah, who is a fallen, corrupt, sinful creature, and the unique, holy, set-apart God. And so this contrast is brought out as the seraphs cry out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory or his importance. And I talked about holiness last time as referring to that which is unique and set apart, which applies to every one of the essence characteristics of God, and that is what gives God his importance his sine qua non, the Latin phrase, without which nothing. He is, without which, without God, there is nothing. He holds everything together all, all the time. And this is his, his weightiness. And so we looked at how holiness isn't a 
it, it applies to every characteristic because God is unique and distinct in each, each of those attributes. And so as Isaiah sees the holiness of God, and that's emphasized in, emphasized in verse 3, sort of the impact of that in verse 4 is that the posts of the temple. So he's in the temple, and, and the columns, the posts, the walls, everything shakes. There's an earthquake, and as the voice of him cries out, the house is filled with smoke, and Isaiah, confronted with the holiness of God, says, Woe is me, for I am undone, I, uh, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I, am a, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh Tzabaoth, the Lord of hosts. So at that point, he collapses, and the seraph flies to him, having in his hand a live coal. Of course, he's not physically burning him, but it is depicting uh, his cleansing of sin, which is what we'll get to here, is that that there has to be this cleansing for worship to take place. He has in his hand a live coal, which he taken with tongs from the altar. And so there is this depiction of the, that stresses the importance of cleansing. But before we get into that, what I want to do is take the rest of the time in class to look at this history of what happens when human beings who are fallen come into the presence of a holy God. And, of course, it starts with Genesis chapter 3. So we turn back to Genesis chapter 3, and we're just going to walk our way through a number of these appearances. And the idea that I want you to keep in mind is that we're talking about what happens when a fallen creature is confronted with the character, the true essence of, of the being of God and what that engenders in the human soul. And so, of course, Genesis 3 is a story we know real well, and it's a story about the fall of man as the serpent tempts Eve. She eats from the fruit of the tree the knowledge of good and evil, and then she offers that to uh, Adam, and he eats, and the result is described in verse 7 that the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They're exposed. They are no longer uh, walking with the Lord. They, they they're com- have complete exposure, and they know it. They know there's a problem, and the reason we know that is because they immediately try to fix it on their own by sewing fig leaves together, and they make for themselves coverings. Now what happens after that is our focal point. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the picture here is of something that happened regularly. God is coming. He's talking to them. I think this was, God was not only teaching him about himself, but he's teaching them about the creation. He's teaching them all kinds of things related to this physical world that God has placed them in. And when they hear God walking in the garden, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. They know they can't come into his presence. They know there is a radical shift that's occurred, and there's a barrier now between them and God. And then in verse 9 we read, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? 
And as I pointed out many times, it's not that God doesn't know where they are. He's wanting them to think about where they are and why they're not with him. And Adam responds by saying, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. There is an existential fear at this point because they are confronted with the holiness of God and his righteousness and justice. They're sinners, and God is not. They're in darkness. He's in light, and they can't approach it. And so they are it, they're terrorized at this point. This is a, that, that fear because there, there's no grace resolution at this point. That will come in chapter, later in chapter 3. Now, if we're going to walk our way through this temporally, I want you to change, and we're going to go f- jump forward to Job. Now, I believe Job happened very early. Job, Job's life is roughly at the same time of Abraham or Isaac, uh, he, there's no mention of Israel or the Jews or Abraham or anything like that. And the whole thrust of Job is dealing with this issue of undeserved suffering. And as the, the story unfolds, uh, Job loses all of his children. He loses all of his possessions. Uh, all of this because Satan has asked God for permission to test him. And then in the second chapter, because uh, he hasn't taken uh, Job's health, he, Satan gets permission to do that. And everything just goes from bad to worse. And then Job's, Job's three friends come along with their false understanding of, of suffering, and they basically all have the view that you're getting what you deserve. And Job knows that he's a righteous man. In fact, in the first few chapters, God has emphasized the fact that Job is righteous, that it, none of this is because of anything Job has done. It all has to do with the angelic conflict, but that's other issues that we've talked about and studied. And so you have these dialogues going on throughout the book of Job where each of his friends uh, make these subtle accusations that you wouldn't have really done, gotten all, had all this happen if you had been good. And so Job responds and he defends himself, but he eventually gets to the point where he realizes that he hasn't done anything wrong, so he wants to talk to God about this. So arrogance begins to slip into his his thinking, and he says he just wants to talk face-to-face with God to understand why God has done this to him. And so then God shows up on the scene, and the Lord answers um, Job, that's in chapter 38, and the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And there's a series of rhetorical questions from God to Job that are designed to teach Job that he really can't understand the answer even if God gave it to him. And so what we see here is the same thing we're seeing in these other situations is a face-to-face confrontation between the fallen corrupt sinner and a holy righteous God. And after the first round of questions, this is Job's response in chapter 40. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? Now, when Job says, Behold, I am vile, did God say, Now, wait a minute. You don't need to have such a bad self-image. Is that what God said? God doesn't correct him. You're a fallen, corrupt sinner. You are vile. 
But that's, that is what happens as the fall, and, he, and he's a believer. And because he is in confrontation, he, he sees God just as Isaiah sees God. He knows what a fallen, unworthy creature he is. He says, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. And he realizes, who was I to say anything? Who am I to, to challenge God, to question God's motives? He says, once I have spoken, but I will not answer yet twice, I, but I will proceed no further. In other words, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Then what we see is that there are uh, more questions from God going through the rest of chapter 40, starting in verse 6 on through chapter 41. And then we get to chapter 42, and Job is going to answer the Lord again. And I want you to notice what he says. He answers the Lord and he says, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. So he's focusing on his omnipotence and God's immutable will. He goes on to say, you asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, and now my eye sees you. Therefore, what? I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, this is the same thing that... that that we see with Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the same thing we see with Isaiah, is that there is a realization and an exposure of who we really are when we take the time to truly confront what the Scripture says about us. And this should leave us with this sense of awe in the presence of God. This is at the core of worship. Now, this isn't what you commonly think of as worship when we come to church on Sunday morning. And especially with the whole idea of contemporary worship, it never gets to this point because it's all about you. In fact, somebody here was telling me that they went by one of these contemporary churches not long ago and was welcoming people to come to the church and, and hear about the universe, Y-O-U-N-I-V-E-R-S-E. You know, it's all self-absorbed. So anyway, that's Job. But we see this pattern developing. I want you to turn back to Genesis, and we're going to go to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28 is a critical event that occurs in the life of Jacob. The context is that Jacob is returning to the land after he fled from Esau, and he's lived in the north up in Syria with his uncle Laban, and he ends up marrying uh, two of his cousins, Rachel and Leah, and now they are coming back into the land. And this is described in, in Job chapter, uh, chapter 48. And so we read that at the beginning of the chapter, um, did I get the chapter right, Job? Uh, I said 28, 28, I turned to 48. It's numbers, you know. Okay. Then I... Uh, He's blessed, go through this, and we have this event that occurs at Bethel. Now, there's some interesting things going on here in the background. 
This is at Bethel. Now, Bethel is located about maybe 10 miles south of Shechem. Let me remind you of the scenario here. When Abraham is first led into the land by God, he enters the land from the north. He comes down the central ridge of the, of the mountains, the hill country of Samaria and Judea. And the first place he stops is Shechem. And there he builds an altar and he calls on the name of the Lord, <coughs> which means that he is making a proclamation in the name of the, of, of the Lord and he's teaching about Yahweh. Then he left there, and he went a day's journey south, which is about maybe 10 miles, and he stops at, at Bethel. And you can go there today. I'd have been there, and I mean, it just sort of sends, uh, sends chills up your spine as you're on that highway near where uh, Abraham stopped, and you're between Bethel and Ai. And there's even an ch- old Byzantine church that was there that was built on the side of an earlier marker to mark this, this location. And so what we hear is now Jacob goes to that same location, which was where um, Abraham had stopped after he left Shechem, and he built an altar and proclaimed the name of the Lord there at Bethel. Now, Bethel means the house of God. Think about that, the house of God. This is a place where you go to meet God. This is what Abraham called it. The Canaanite name was Luz. So Jacob comes there. In verse 11, we're told, So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. I guess he hadn't heard of my pillow yet. It's just a rock. I've done that before. It is not comfortable. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth. And it really isn't a ladder. It's more of a staircase. It's a stairway to heaven. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. Now, one of the interesting things here is you've got to understand the, the ancient Near Eastern background. Think about what's happened in Genesis. Genesis chapter 6 through 9, you have what? You have the flood of Noah. They come off of the flood of Noah. God has flooded everything. And then you have uh, the Noahic covenant. And then you have the chapters in chapter 10 and 11 that give the genealogy. Chapter 11 talks about what happens uh, to the descendants of uh, the, the Hamitic descendants who come together, and you have Nimrod as one of Ham's uh, grandsons, and he's a mighty hunter. He builds an empire. It's centered in um, in Iraq at Babylon, what becomes Babylon. And they build these towers. They're ziggurats. They're, they're, they're stepped temples. And the idea is that, that as paganism has twisted this idea is they're building these high places and it's a, the plain of Shinar, so it's flat. It's like the Gulf Coast. You want to get up high enough to avoid the flood. That's part of their twisted thinking. And they built these. It's a staircase. And we know what happens is everybody comes together. They don't spread out, as God says. So God comes down, and he's going to judge them and scatter the languages. And so in Hebrew, it is called Babel, Babel which means, which references confusion in Hebrew. But the 
the the Akkadian or Babylonian word doesn't mean confusion. It means the gate of God, Bob El. Now, Bethel is going to be that same meaning. So we see this, this juxtaposition that's going on here between Babylon and their false view of the gate of God and what is happening with Abraham's decision and and God giving him a true entry into the gate of God. So that's what is pictured here. Jacob sees this, this staircase like what you would have on a ziggurat, and the angels of God are ascending and de- descending upon it, and then there's a reiteration and a reconfirmation of the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob. Verse 13, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you live, on which you lie. I will give to you and your descendants. Verse 14, also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall be spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So it's a reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant. But what is Jacob's response? Verse 16, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And what? And he was afraid. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There, This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So he rose early in the morning, verse 19, he called the name of that place Bethel, the house of God, uh, the name previously, and he makes a vow there. And this was where, of course, there was an altar uh, to the Lord. So it is an act of worship. But there is fear because, again, a sinner, though, though a believer, has come in con- face-to-face confrontation uh, with God. Then let's go to the next episode. Turn over one book to Exodus. Exodus chapter 19. This is a very interesting passage and situation. The Israelites have been freed from uh, slavery in Egypt. And then they are led by the Lord through the wilderness after they've crossed the the Red Sea. They continue south on the... uh, Sinai Peninsula to wherever Mount Sinai is located. There's a lot of discussion and disagreement over that. And they come down to Mount Sinai, and God is going to uh, meet with them. And in Exodus chapter 19, verse 10, well, let's look right before that. Moses calls the elders to come out and gives them the instructions from the Lord. Verse 8, Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Notice how willing they are to do everything. We'll do it all. We'll do everything God wants to do. They haven't been confronted with God yet. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever because they're going to have such a face-to-face meeting with God on Sinai. 
So the Lord says the first thing is that the people need to concentrate themselves tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. There has to be cleansing, ritual cleansing, before they can come into the presence of God. And let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You're going to set bounds for the people all around so that none of the people will break through uh, to the presence to the presence of God. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. So if, if any of them break through, then there are going to be some serious, serious consequences. And then we read in verse 16, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning, there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud. And what's the response of the people? So that all the people who were in the camp trembled. There is fear because they're being confronted with a holy, righteous God, and they are an unclean people, as we all are. And so Moses brings the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stand at the foot of the mountain, and they hear God speak, and he gives the Ten Commandments. That's chapter, chapter 20. And then look at what happens at the conclusion of God giving them the Decalogue. Now all the people, verse 18, now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, what? They trembled. Twice. This is emphasized. When they see God, they tremble. There is fear. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. We don't want to hear his voice again. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin, so that there is a recognition of who God is and who they are, and that will result in their obedience. You have other examples that come through in Exodus, and I'm not going to go through all of them. There's there's examples in in, Exodus. Exodus 24, 9 through 11. Let's skip over to Exodus 33, 10. And this is the Lord coming to Moses again and directing him to leave from, uh, from Sinai. And in verse 10, we read, All the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So they are awestruck again, and their response is to worship God. Now, we don't know how that was manifested, whether that was prayer or, or, or just exactly what happened. And in verse 11, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, did not depart from the, from the tabernacle. And so this is what we see going on in um, in Exodus, as the people f- fear God, but they worship God. It's not a terror that drives drives them away. Turn in the New Testament now to Matthew chapter 17. We've got two more quick examples. Matthew chapter 17. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. And so Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him. 
up onto this mountain, and there he is transfigured before them, and his his divine nature is manifest as this brilliant light. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as light, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared with them talking with him. Now, Peter, who always talks before he thinks, says, well, we'll make three tabernacles here. That is, we're going to worship you and Moses and Elijah. And while he was speaking, God spoke. Basically, Peter shut up and listened for a change. And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So they hear the voice of God. If they had an MP3 recorder, they could have recorded it. And when the disciples heard it, what happens? Now, these are believers. They fell on their face, and they were greatly afraid. But you see, what grace enters in, as it did in the Old Testament, is arise and do not be afraid. Because God has solved the problem, but we have to understand that there is this distinction with God. And then I want to look at our last example. Turn to the first chapter of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, this is now fully into the church age. And what happens is Jesus appears to John the Apostle some 60 years after the crucifixion. And we look at Revelation 1, verse 17. And what does John say? When I saw him, this is the beloved disciple. This is the disciple who puts his head on Jesus' shoulder during the Last Supper. This is the disciple that is the closest to Jesus. And he sees Jesus in his glory appear to him in Revelation 1 and When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Do you see a pattern? I mean, this confrontation with God, he's, he's not our buddy. Even with John the Apostle who sees the resurrected Lord, who, 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 he's the beloved disciple, he falls down as dead, but there's grace. He laid a hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. That's the distinction. There's not, it's not fear that's hopeless. It's an awe because you see who God is, and that's at the core. That's the attitude we should bring when we come to worship. Father, thank you for this time we've had to look at your word, to be reminded of who you are, the reality of your character, your essence, your holiness, the distinctiveness, uh, your glory, and to realize that too often when we think of worship, there's too much of a sense of familiarity and, and a sense of, of, of things as being casual and informal. And what we see in the scripture is that that doesn't those attitudes and that mentality doesn't reflect what we see when people come face to face with you in the scriptures. And that this should have an impact on how we come together, the distinction that we should make on a Sunday morning, making this a a, a distinct time where we're taking it as a much more serious time 
a time dedicated to focus upon you and to learn about you and that not to have this this casual informal attitude that too often characterizes our thinking and we pray that as we study this way that you will bring to our attention uh, our own failings and flaws in the way we think uh, about worship and and expose them to scripture and we pray this in christ's name amen